Hey everyone, my name is OJ Tucker, host of the OJ Tucker podcast, the only comedy tennis podcast that talks about our political and societal culture as a whole. My name is OJ Tucker, as the name would suggest. Happy Tuesday. Hopefully you guys are, are getting ready uh, for the quarterfinals and the semifinals of the Australian Open. And hopefully you guys spend time with your family and friends and uh, had a great weekend uh, this past few days uh, while we were away. Uh, there's a little bit of news that we can get into. Obviously, we can get into uh, news within or what outside of the tennis world. We can discuss M&Ms trying to be, become more inclusive. We can discuss Howard Stern saying hospitals should turn away the unvaxxed and make them die and make them dead. But obviously, this will be a tennis-heavy podcast. This will be an episode that will be focused on tennis-related topics because of the fact that it is the Australian Open, second week of the Australian Open. So we will be discussing Taylor Fritz and um, just what's going to happen with Taylor Fritz. Obviously, he's playing right now against Tsitsipas. We'll, uh, I'll give you an update as to what's currently happening uh, and why I believe Taylor Fritz is here to stay. We can discuss Rafa Nadal and if he can surpass Novak Djokovic in Majors 1. I know that's a little bit of a uh, interesting comparison because, you know, obviously, you know, Novak Djokovic is one of the best of all time, but having said all that, you know, because of the VAX requirement and whatnot, uh, Rafa Nadal can surpass him, and that's uh, something that is interesting to keep in mind. Uh, but where will we start off for today, uh, and obviously we can discuss the weekly pick, where we'll start off for today will be uh, Daniil Medvedev beats Cressy. Now, if you guys don't know, Daniil Medvedev uh, played Cressy yesterday, uh, or this past day actually. I played him today for the quarterfinal, uh, not for the quarterfinal, for the for the fourth round. And as a result, uh, Daniil Medvedev has beaten Cressy. Uh, just pulling this up right here, uh, he beats Maxime Cressy six two seven six six four six seven seven five. Uh, and he beat him in four sets, and that's great for Daniel Medvedev. You know, I think that's great to see him win, to see him progress, to see him make the adjustments needed for him to succeed and to, for him to win. However, uh, he fought valiantly. And when I say valiantly, I not only mean Daniel Medvedev, I also mean um, Cressy as well. You know, the American-born player that has really floored a lot of people for the past week or so due to his play on the court. And Daniil Medvedev really had a, a very difficult match here. It was not a, a, a match that was ideal for Daniil Medvedev. Case in point is because of the fact that he played against a serve and volley type player. Now, for Daniil Medvedev, he has success against aggressive baseliners. You know, he is a counter puncher, so he does do well against aggressive baseliners. Against serve and volley type players, not so much. And this was one of those instances where Daniil Medvedev really had a tough time against Cressy. And, you know, it really shined and highlighted and was really showcased in that third set. I mean, when you see that third set, uh, he, I mean, he was up 4-3 in the second tiebreaker. And somehow, some way, Cressy just came back and was able to win four straight points, four straight tiebreaking points to get ahead and to get that th uh, third set. And part of it, you know, you could actually see Daniel Medvedev, maybe not in that tiebreaker, but you can actually see Daniel Medvedev voice his frustration with Cressy because of the fact that he was, you know, playing such elite tennis. And he was saying, I'm not used to this. You know, he is actually like mumbling to himself. And you can actually hear uh, the camera operators pick it up where, you know, Medvedev was just saying to himself, man, I'm, I'm just not here right now. You know, I'm just, I'm not, this is, this is tiring. This is you know, boring for me. You know, I don't, this is, you know, obviously I'm sort of uh, butchering what he said, but, you know, that sentiment really rocks true when he did lose to Cressy. So for me, like when I saw this match, uh, I was just floored and uh, stunned to see how volatile Daniil Medvedev is. You know, when you think of Daniil Medvedev, he's, nowhere, he's second ranked. You know, we expect Daniil Medvedev to reach the final, uh, but Honestly, when you see Maxime Cressy uh, do this well and, and and you know actually give you know give him a competitive showing, two things are true. One thing is that Maxime Cressy is getting better, and more importantly, what a you know Cinderella run he had at the Australian Open. That's true. However, that also shows that Daniil Medvedev has faults, and he's not as perfect as we may think he is. And more importantly, he does have instances where he's not playing the best tennis that he can possibly can. 
And that's something that you have to keep an eye on, eye out for when he does play against the Shapovalovs, the Rafnadals, if they happen to progress to face him. Obviously, Shapovalov and Nadal are playing today at 10 p.m. So, uh, and obviously, you're hearing this on a Tuesday, so this will this you this will already happen, but. You know, eventually, uh, Daniil Medvedev will have to make the jump to face one of those individuals. You know, he will have to make the jump to face a person that's not even in that bracket or in that ranking. And, you know, how will he rise up to that occasion during that instance? And I think these are the questions that are very important to ask uh, during this time that we have of Daniil Medvedev. And, you know, just because, you know, he, you know, didn't have the best showing against uh, Cressy, it doesn't mean that uh, he's not that great of a tennis player. In fact, it's quite opposite. You know, obviously, when you progress and when you get d- uh, deeper and deeper, you know, it is uh, sort of expected of you to drop a few sets here and there. But it's just the fact that uh, it's just the fact that you know he is a second-ranked tennis player. He is a second-ranked tennis player. You know, Djokovic is not playing anymore for the Australian Open and probably for the foreseeable future because of the fact that there are vaccine requirements. So when you have that high of an expectation for a Medvedev. And when he doesn't really uh, succeed for those expectations, it does give you the inclination that, you know, he is at that point where the cracks can start to show, you know, and, you know, when you have John X Sinner uh, getting to the quarterfinal and, you know, when you're having Taylor Fritz and Sitsipas that are currently duking it out, I'm actually just trying to do the live updates here for Fritz and Sitsipas, see what happens. But, you know, when you see that happen, you know, when you see these individuals, now progressing to the semifinals when you see the competition when you see the parity get more and more competitive it does give you some type of of you know it does it does shock you and and not shock you but it is expected uh, of a Medvedev to not necessarily play as what we expected him to play in the earlier rounds because of the fact that competition now gets more competitive now that individuals are playing the best tennis of their lives. They're now, uh, you know, taking this more seriously each and every day, each and every uh, time they step on court. So obviously it's one of those things where it is to be expected of Medvedev to drop some sets. But again, you know, there are cracks within Medvedev's game. And if, you know, if somebody's able to exploit that, then that's great. But um, I wouldn't hold out any sort of doubt for Medvedev at this point. If I'm, I'm not a better, I'm not a gambler, but... For me, like I would not bet against Medvedev right now. I, like, I, despite the Shapovalovs and the Nadal, and the Nadals and the Jonic Sinners, you know, Fritz and Sitsipas. Again, I don't know the outcome for that match, but I wanted to film this as soon as possible uh, because you know I just thought it would be important for being punctual sake, for being timely sake. Uh, but yes, I do think that Medvedev does have cracks within his game. Uh, he's Obviously, that's expected because of the amount of individuals that are very successful and very talented in terms of their on-the-court tennis play uh, at the stage and time. You know, that's very natural of it to happen. Uh, however, you know, Medvedev, you know, has... He's not perfect, you know. He's not... And, you know, there are going to be times where he's not going to play the best of his ability, and, and that's completely fine. Uh, but now the cracks are, they're not, sh- I mean, obviously they're not wounded, they're not open, but obviously, you know, I think that now people are sort of seeing it and saying, okay, now other players can step in and really sort of find ways to win against Medvedev in ways that Cressy couldn't, in ways that Maxime Cressy couldn't. And uh, I think that you're going to see that in the quarterfinal. I mean, I think Medvedev, in my opinion, is still going to make, make it to the final. I still think that's going to happen. Um, now he's, I I mean, I think he's scheduled to play or compete against one of either Fritz or Sitsipas. I think that's the case. Uh, but he's still, in my opinion, going to survive to the final. Uh, what's important here is, you know, how can Medvedev be able to do that? Uh, and can he compose himself during this late in the round? Uh, I think that's something that, has yet to be desired, especially at the Australian Open. I mean, when you think of last year's Australian Open, that wasn't the case. He did lose to a joker in the final. Uh, but that's something that you have to keep an eye out for, and that all tennis fans should keep an eye out for uh, in the next up-and-coming days that we still have of him. So, I mean, that's just my overall thoughts and opinions on Daniel Medvedev uh, being able to 
get to uh, the quarterfinals. And uh, I'm excited to see what's happen- what's going to happen for him. I really am. Um, because of the fact that he's just an, an interesting tennis player. And more importantly, I think uh, he has what it takes to um, really show up and show out and, and to deliver uh, when the chips are against him. So I think that's something that should be seen of him in the next up-and-coming uh, few days. All right. Uh, I feel like I sort of stretched out that, that topic uh, thin uh, by the end of it. But, yeah, that's just overall my thoughts and opinions on the uh, Medvedev sort of showing. Um, and uh, I'm excited to see what's up, up with him uh, in the next upcoming rounds. Obviously, when you have a counterpuncher, it's going to change things a lot because of the fact that, uh, you know, all of his rallies are going to be so long. You know, he is, he is not called Octopus Man for the sake of being called Octopus Man. There's a reason behind that. And that's because of his amazing play at the baseline, but also because of the fact that he's able to extend himself in rallies. And that's completely fine when you're dealing with a Medvedev and those players within that type of ilk. Uh, so yeah, let's let's. I think I've talked about that topic ad nauseum. So let's talk about our next topic. Let's discuss about our next topic. This is some form of a good thought exercise that I really want to have with you guys here. And... Um, couldn't pick a better topic to really discuss it. Uh, can Rafa Nadal surpass Novak Djokovic in majors one due to the VAX requirements within these countries? I know this is a sort of a loaded topic. I know this is sort of a Monday morning quarterback topic. I, I get it. Uh, I, I know it's like, it's a fun thought exercise, and I really want to discuss this because Rafa Nadal currently is playing in the quarterfinal. Uh, he's playing Shapovalov. You know, assuming that he wins, he gets to the semifinal. And right now, he has a chance to reach the final. Uh, now, I released a video last week saying, can Rafa Nadal win the Australian Open? Uh, honestly, I, I maybe he could. I don't know. It's, I, I, he has a good shot. I said in that pe- uh, previous video, I still think so as well. Um, but there is a good chance that Rafa Nadal, for this year and for maybe the near immediate distant future can surpass Novak Djokovic in majors one. And it has everything to do with the fact that Novak Djokovic isn't vaccinated. And I've said, you know, my spiel on it. You know, I I think, you know, we shouldn't force people to get vaccinated. But, you know, be that as it may, uh, Novak Djokovic isn't scheduled to compete uh, at the Australian Open. He's not competing at the Australian Open. Uh, The French Open, you know, I don't think he's scheduled to compete at the French Open. The the, uh, country of France just announced that they will be checking for vaccine uh, for vaccines uh, to enter to enter the country. So chances are, if that stands, then there's a good chance that Novak Djokovic probably isn't going to be able to play Roland Garros. If he is, then I wouldn't be surprised. But as of this moment in time, based off the information that is known, uh, it doesn't seem likely that he will be able to play Roland Garros. And not only that, but Rafa Nadal is the king of clay. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, Rafa Nadal have multiple wins at Wimbledon and have multiple wins at the US Open. So there is a good chance that Rafa Nadal, if he is healthy, obviously that's the biggest if in, in the world, there is a good chance that Rafa Nadal, by the end of the year, can have a good 21-22 majors one. And that's something that a lot of Novak Djokovic fans, as well as tennis fans, uh, should be aware of. So when I see this, you know, just because, you know, you know, somebody has more majors won, that doesn't, to me, like, you know, for me, obviously, that matters a lot. Uh, for, obviously, for Novak Djokovic fans, they may say, say otherwise. For Rafa Nadal fans, they may say otherwise. But for me, I do think that uh, majors won is a very important statistic. And obviously, people will sort of, you know, debate and discuss as to whether or not uh, Rafa Nadal's majors one is legitimate because of the fact that he's won 13 or 14 at Roland Garros. For me, I still view it as, you know, legitimate. You know, there's still Grand Slams one, uh, but you can make the case that, you know, because of the fact that most of it was at Roland Garros and not so much at, say, uh, Wimbledon or U.S. Open or the Australian Open, that it doesn't matter as much as Novak Djokovic. I wouldn't put it past anybody, but uh, for me, like, I still value majors one. So there is a good chance that Rafa Nadal can uh, surpass the majors one by Novak Djokovic. And I think that is something that is a possibility. And for Rafa Nadal, if he's able to win the Australian Open, first off, that would make 
that would make history, not only for, for the fact that he would surpass Novak Djokovic with 21 majors, but for the fact that he would be joining Novak Djokovic and having multiple majors out of the four Grand Slams. Right now, the Australian Open is the one that he does the worst, not the worst in, but the least best at. Uh, he's only won one major at the Australian Open, which was at 2009. I mean, go watch the semifinal round between uh, Nadal and Verdasco back in 2009. Very good match. I highly recommend. But, you know, when you see uh, Rafa Nadal, his success mostly came from the French Open. So if he's able to win the Australian Open, again, you know, I don't... You know, I, I don't know if he's going to win the French Open. I mean, the Australian Open, you know, he starts to... There's still a lot of competition left. He, you know, there's still the Sinners, the Shapovalovs, uh, the Tsitsipases, the, um, you know, the Medvedevs. So it's... I don't know if it's likely for him to win the Australian Open, but if he does win the Australian Open, because I wouldn't put it past him, he is, he's, he has 20 majors won, then you could see the argument that Rafa Nadal can surpass Novak Djokovic. And, you know, obviously people will sort of, you know, gawk at it, you know, and whatnot. But, I mean, that's a good possibility. And I, I think that's something that a lot of tennis players should be open to. And I, I think that there is a good chance that this can happen, you know. And, and I know people like to, you know, squander that and whatnot. But, you know, because of Novak Djokovic not being vaccinated, I do think that this opens a realm of possibilities and actually makes the playing field more... Uh, more competitive now because of the fact that there is an absence of Novak Djokovic. So I do think that in a way, uh, no, that Rafa Nadal can surpass Novak Djokovic if Novak Djokovic does not play in the future because of the fact that uh, his vax status is right now declined due to the fact that he didn't take the vax. So again, that's just my overall thoughts and opinions on all this. I think Rafa Nadal can surpass him. Uh, now, will it change in the next three, four years? Obviously, I mean, Rafa Nadal uh, probably doesn't have that much shelf life compared to that of, say, Novak Djokovic. You know, there is an age difference between the two. Not that much of an age difference, but still, in terms of their playing styles and their playing careers, there is, an, uh, there is a difference in terms of uh, how much love they have to give. But I do think that uh, that is a possibility of Rafa Nadal surpassing Novak Djokovic in majors one. And I think that's fine, honestly. Like, uh, just because, you know, for me, like I do value majors. You know, I mean, you know, when when you, when I see, you know, Andy Murray, you know, have three majors, one compared to Rafa Nadal and and, and uh, Novak Djokovic. Obviously, a part of me is like, you know, why is that the case? You know, he's one of my favorite players of all time. But I mean, the numbers don't lie. I mean, he's won three to their twenty. So, I mean, not to disparage Andy Murray, obviously, he's one of my favorite tennis players. He's inspired me so much, and in more ways than one, actually. But, I mean, you can't, the stats don't lie. The numbers don't lie. Uh, so, I mean, I, I do think that, in a way, um, you know, that's something that, that is a statistic that people very that, that people seem to care about. And for me, I care about it as well, you know. I mean, I mean look at all the videos on my podcast clips channel about Majors 1. And look at the amount of videos of me proclaiming Novak Djokovic the GOAT uh, because of the fact that he's won Wimbledon and whatnot. Uh, so, I, honestly, I, I still think Novak Djokovic is the GOAT. I still do. Uh, but things can change. You know, things can change if if Rafa Nadal is able to win the French Open, if Rafa Nadal is able to win the Australian Open. You know, if he's able to get 22 majors, I mean, that's that might be a stretch. I was going to say 23, actually. If he wins 23 majors, that's a stretch. If he wins 21, 22, and if he's able, is he, if he's able to surpass that of a Novak Djokovic, you could make the argument that he's the GOAT. You could make the argument. I know I'm, I'm doing, I know I'm, you know, spewing out hot takes left and right, and I'm very sorry. Uh, they're piping out fresh. They're just out of the oven. But there is a legitimate, a legitimate chance that Rafa Nadal could be the GOAT, which... Honestly, I would actually kind of like as well. I mean, obviously, I like Novak Djokovic right now being the GOAT, but there is a good chance that Rafa Nadal could be the GOAT. And I, I think that is a very interesting possibility. That's a very sexy possibility. Um, and obviously, uh, tennis Twitter and tennis Reddit would be in shambles if that ever potentially happened. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's just something that... 
um, you know, that I think that's something that people should really keep an eye out for. And I think that's something that a lot of Novak Djokovic fans should keep an eye out for. Uh, because that could really potentially happen. All right. Uh, let's get into our next bit of discussion here, shall we? Uh, Taylor Fritz. And let me just pull it up, Taylor Fritz. I want to see the... Oh, they're still in the fifth set. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Two, two, two all. Uh, here's the thing about Taylor Fritz. Taylor Fritz has had an amazing, an amazing Australian Open. He's now in the fourth round playing against Sitsipas. He, you know, was able to beat several individuals along the way. And he's doing pretty well for a American-born tennis player. And I'm very excited to see what's up with uh, Taylor Fritz. Uh, and I'm very, very excited to see what's up with Taylor Fritz. And this is why I think that Taylor Fritz is here to stay in the ATP and why I think he has a chance to compete for majors and potentially win a major. And that's because of the fact that he was able to make the fourth round and still be able to compete, which is great. And more importantly, his focus on playing aggressive at the baseline and more importantly, not only that, but having superb serves is something that I've really haven't seen from other players, especially when I talk about American-born tennis players. You know, when you think of American-born tennis players, uh, you know, you think of the Sampras's and the Agassiz's, and, you know, it's safe to say that the game has changed a lot since then. And, you know, it's now become more fast-paced. No, maybe not fast-paced. That's the wrong way of saying it, but it's become more methodical. A stark contrast to that of fast pace. It's become, you know, more baseline heavy. It's become uh, being able to win a point from the outside in. And all of that's very important. And when you see Taylor Fritz on the court, and when you see Taylor Fritz against these players that, you know, by and large, uh, stat-wise, should beat Taylor Fritz. You know, when you see his composure, when you see him be able to uh, surpass the expectations of, you know, his naysayers and detractors, when you see an individual that currently right now is playing Sitsipas and is reaching the fifth set against Sitsipas, uh, that does, and again, obviously, Sitsipas hasn't had the best Australian Open so far. Uh, there have been times where he was close to fail, to clo- was close to lose, uh, to cl- losing in these matches, and you know he's had a bit of a tough time to close out these matches, as evidenced by his match against uh, Fritz. But when you see these matches, and when you see uh, Taylor Fritz's overall demeanor on the court in terms of his firepower, and more importantly, you know when you see him. Uh, play against Francis Tiafu and still having cramps despite uh, playing, you know, Francis Tiafu, the fact that he still got cramps in one, I mean, that just shows the willpower of a Fritz. And I really love the back and forth that he had with Ben Rothenberg on Twitter because of it. Uh, but when you see the cramps that he's had, when you see his ability to really defy the odds in a lot of ways, uh, that does give you inspiration as to what we can expect from Taylor Fritz uh, in the future. You know, and, and for Taylor Fritz, you know, he is an American-born tennis player. And I, I know I've said on my podcast that American-born tennis players, at this point in time, it doesn't really matter. You know, for us, for my generation, we just value interesting voices, interesting characters. I mean, not to borrow from the UFC, but when you watch the UFC, you see Francis Ngannou fight Cyril Ghosn, and everybody and their mother loves Francis Ngannou. Maybe not so much the fight with Cyril Ghosn, because it was mostly a, a you know, a, a ground game match. It was mostly a... It was mostly submissions match, you know, takedowns and whatnot. But, I mean, Francis Ngannou is a household name within UFC fans. And I think, you know, in tennis, that's going to go the same way as well, where you're going to have a lot of tennis players, as you do right now, that aren't American-born but still are universal in their love and respect for by tennis fans. But I do think that, you know, being an American-born tennis player, I think that, in my opinion, you know, that doesn't hurt you know that does help and with taylor fritz you know being him being an american board tennis player uh having a very unique style under his belt being able to sort of not only play aggressive near the baseline but also all around in terms of his ability to get to the net get near the net and put away near the net all of that really matters and for taylor fritz to now be able to play in the fifth set and now play against its boss i think that's amazing and more importantly, I think that shows that Taylor Fritz, uh, while he may not win the Australian Open, again, he still has three more matches if he does win against Sitsipas. Uh, he just still has three more matches under his belt. He still has to face 
uh, tighter competition and, and probably players that are much better than him. Uh, but that doesn't mean that this is the end all be all. You know, he still has the US Open, that which is another hardcore uh, tournament. So if he does well at the Australian Open, then chances are he'll do well at the US Open. They're both hardcore tournaments. Uh, he could uh, win Wimbledon, you know. Uh, I don't know if the French Open could be his case. I don't know. Uh, usually the uh, it's just Rafa Nadal, but, you know, Rafa Nadal has such a monopoly on the French Open that it's so hard to gauge as to whether or not other tennis players can win. But he can succeed at the US Open. I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past the uh, Wimbledon as well. I mean, you could be seeing a player that could have a very similar career of that of a Sampras. You know, I mean, a, a person that was able to succeed uh, at Wimbledon, at, you know, these sort of hardcore tournaments, but not really bring it at the French Open for, for cases unbeknownst to anybody else. So, I mean, there's a good chance that, you know, Taylor Fritz could can win majors. And I'm happy to see him really fi- uh, get that chip on his shoulder to really succeed and really progress. And more importantly, really come out on his own and and to show a style of tennis that uh, we really haven't been accustomed to seeing by Taylor Fritz. Uh, so I'm really, very excited to see what's what's going to happen with him. Uh, and above all, I'm, you know, these American-born tennis players, there's something else. They really are. You know, when you see Francis Tiafu, when you see uh, Taylor Fritz, you know, when you see Opelka, uh, now Maxime Cressy at, at him as well. You know, all of that really adds up at the end and it really shows that you know while they not they, while they may not have the same allure as say a jimmy connors or a McEnroe or a sampras or an agassi they still have what it takes to really elicit people within america to discuss about them and i think that's a really perfect uh, way to sort of view them at as right now you know the sort of i wouldn't call them lovable losers you know they have done a lot in their careers but I would say that, you know, they still have a lot more to prove. They are the underdogs. You know, they're like, uh, I know I'm, you know, I'm all over the place with this topic, but, you know, they're like the 04 Red Sox, you know, people that, you know, you want to see win and, you know, and want to see them do well. Uh, They just haven't shown that they can so far. Uh, You know, they're progressing, they're doing well, uh, but they haven't, you know, somewhat shown that they can win. Obviously, the Red Sox won the World Series, the World Series in 2004, uh, so maybe that's not the best sort of way to judge it. Maybe the 03 Red Sox, better way of saying it. Uh, you know, better way of uh, putting it. You know, that's something that I think, you know, can get a lot of people watching is, you know, just the play that he's able to uh, bring on, on court and, more importantly, um, how he's able to really get people talking and whatnot. So, I mean, that's just my overall thoughts on Taylor Fritz being able to uh, reach the Australian Open, uh, reach the Australian Open fourth round. And obviously it remains to be seen as to whether or not he will reach the quarterfinal. But um, yeah, that's um, that's just something that uh, we should all keep an eye out for for Taylor Fritz. I think uh, the sky's the limit for this man and he has a lot of potential under, un- underneath him. So uh, that that should be good for him. All right, um, a little bit, little bit of things to plug here. Um, I will be recap, recapping the quarterfinals. Uh, I don't know how I'll be st- able to stay up because uh, there's a match at 10 a.m. Uh, 10 p.m. today. There will be a match at 4 a.m. tomorrow. Um, I, yeah, part of me is like, man, like, why can't we just move the Australian Open uh, to some other country now that Novak is not going to play? Uh, but, uh, you know, just, I want to be able to, I'm going to watch it, you know, 10 PM today, I'll be recapping the quarterfinals on my podcast clips channel. So go be on the lookout for that on my podcast clips channel. And, uh, we'll be recapping the 4am match with Diminar and John Center. So go be on the lookout for that. I think it's John Center. Let me pull it up right now, but I will be recapping, uh, the quarterfinals and semifinals, uh, for the Australian Open as well as the finals that will happen, um, on Sunday. Uh, now, this will be very enjoyable, and uh, hopefully we have our, ourselves a good time. I've actually recapped other quarterfinal recaps as well. Uh, not Deminar, sorry. Uh, Mon- uh, sorry, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, quarterfinal, which is uh, Gail Monfils and Berrettini, which is tomorrow, and Ogier Al-Yassim with Medvedev. So, again, you know, just be on the lookout for that. 
uh, you know, I will be recapping those matches. We'll see what happens from there. Why did I say Diminar? Why did I say Diminar will be progressing to the quarterfinals? I do not know why I said that. Uh, full, uh, you know, just I, I'm running on very little sleep here. Uh, I've I've watched way too much Australian Open in the past few few days, so I'm very sorry. I'm I'm running on very low sleep. Um, so I'm, I'm very sorry if I'm messing up more often than not for this podcast episode. I've just been doing comedy and, uh, watching tennis and doing this podcast and, and everything. It's just, uh, it hasn't been the best few days for me. It really hasn't. Uh, but, um, so be on the lookout, uh, for that, uh, in the up and coming few hours, actually, uh, I will be recapping it in, in the next few hours. Uh, if you're, if, or yeah, if, if this happens, if this video happens to be releasing, uh, before the quarterfinal recap that I'll be putting out. So who knows? Uh, so go check out my podcast channel if you haven't already. Uh, let's get into news outside of the tennis world. Uh, Howard Stern says hospitals should turn away the unvaxxed and make them dead. So this is from Complex News. Stern went on to say that if it were up to him, hospitals would turn away the unvaccinated and they would go home and die. No one sitting there conspiring against you, Stern continued. Americans don't want to create a vaccine that's going to turn you into a robot or magnetize you. There's enough Americans now have taken it. Look at look at us as a sampling where nothing has happened to us. It's time for you to get it. No, now if you don't get it, in my America, all hospitals will be closed to you. You're going to go home and die. This is what you should get? Absolutely. Before the Biden administration attempted to impose a vaccine mandate for large private companies that was blocked by the Supreme Court last week, Stern argued for implementing such an order on a show in September. As I remember, when I went to school, you had to get a measles vaccine. You had to get a mumps vaccine, he explained. His patients with anti-vaxxers had already worn thin, and even back then, Stern wanted hospitals to turn them away. The other thing I hate is that all these people with COVID who won't, who won't get vaccinated uh, are in the hospitals clogging it up, he said. So, like, if you have a heart attack or any kind of problem, you can't even get to, into the ER. And I'm, really, and I'm really of mind to say, look, if you don't get vaccinated and you get COVID, you don't get into a hospital. Go off yourself. You have the cure and you won't, t- you won't take it. All right, where to start with this? Because... Howard Stern said a lot of COVID misinformation that if he, if the CDC was actually honest about, they would say, okay, this is COVID misinformation, uh, which by their laws probably isn't because he said a lot of things that wouldn't actually make the CDC blush, such as, you know, making the unvaccinated die. All right. So he starts off by saying this. He says, as I remember, I, when I went to school, you had to get a measles vaccine. You had to get a mumps vaccine. A measles vaccine makes you not get measles. A mumps vaccine, if you take it, doesn't make you get mumps. I've seen a lot of people take the vaccine and still get the and still get COVID. I've seen people take their two shots and still get boosted. And despite all that, Omicron still makes you get COVID. Now you can make the argument that it mitigates the severity of getting of you know dying from COVID, which okay that that's that's people's beliefs and i actually understand where that belief comes from but having said all that uh also not having comorbidities helps you know also having natural immunity helps being able to be healthy and really take care of yourself and take your vitamins and and live an active healthy lifestyle also helps in mitigating the severity of getting covid you know i think all this matters as well uh now you can make the argument that vaccines do work and that's fine you know that's completely fine with being pro-vax but this is something different you know this is being totalitarian being draconian if you will in terms of your uh beliefs in vaccine mandates you know i mean there's a lot of things that you know howard stern said in this where i truly think is repugnant you know telling people that are unvaxxed that they should die in a hospital is something that i find to be extremely repugnant extremely repugnant you know, just because somebody didn't take a vaccine, and I say this about Joker a lot, Novak Djokovic, you know, just because somebody didn't take a vaccine doesn't mean that we should treat them any less than those who have uh, taken the vaccine. You know, and, and, and I think that's something that we should view, you know, you know, the lack of compassion we have for people that aren't vaccinated is very scary. You know, it's very daunting, you know, and just because somebody didn't take the vaccine doesn't mean that they're anti-science or anti-vax. 
you know, it's their body, their choice. And it's up to them as to, the, as to whether they want to have a pharmaceutical product injected into their blood vessels. That's completely fine up with them. For me, I, I just took the vaccine because I didn't want to be blamed for if my parents did get COVID and died from COVID. I didn't want to be blamed uh, for spreading COVID. You know, I did my part. I got my shots. I just wanted what's best for them. I had no care in the world for getting the vaccine. I just wanted them to be safe and be at peace. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't want my parents to die. And I feel like a lot of people within my age range feel the exact same way. You know, I mean, we don't really, for me, I don't really care neither here nor there about the vaccine. You know, it's up to you if you want to take it. If you're for taking the vaccine and if you want people to take the vaccine, that's completely fine. Uh, but for me, I, I just took it because I didn't want my parents to die, and I didn't want my I didn't want to be blamed for my parents for my parents being dead, you know, if that happened. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's why I did it. You know, that's why I did it. That's why I wanted. Uh, that's why I wanted it. Uh, you know, so that's why I took it. You know, it was just so I didn't want to get blamed. Um, yeah, that's that's it. Uh, you know, so you know when I see this and when I see Howard Stern have a lack of, of compassion for anti-vaxxers, it's like wow, he's such a, he's such in a bubble, you know. And as much crap as we give uh, Joe Rogan, I, and don't get me wrong, it's easy to you know uh, rub salt on Joe Rogan's obvious wound that is still there, which is, uh, I mean, it's easy to go after Joe Rogan. Don't get me wrong, but at least with Joe Rogan, he has some form of compassion. At least he has some form of sympathy and empathy for those who haven't taken the vaccine because he himself hasn't taken the vaccine, you know, and and, and that's something that I, I'm happy or glad to see that of Joe Rogan because, you know, obviously, you know, Joe Rogan and Howard Stern, they often get compared to one another. You know, they're two media moguls. You know, obviously, Joe Rogan wouldn't want to want to call himself a media mogul, but he is a media mogul. Uh, he has the biggest entity, you know, platform in the entire world as of this moment in time the leverage that he has is crazy uh so i mean honestly i, I think you know obviously you know people go up to joe rogan but you know when i hear howard stern you know a lot of liberals have the audacity to support him which makes no sense whatsoever i mean we should never have a dogmatic view on science you know and when you see you know the vaccine and when you see uh, again, this is just, I'm just getting this from NPR. I'm just getting this from actual websites. When you see women suffer, have issues with their menstrual cycle patterns, you know, when, when, when you see, uh, you know, people, you know, sort of have prolonged side effects to the vaccine, you know, and, 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 you know, people sort of, you know, questioning whether or not they had these side effects, you know, it, it, it makes you question, what their intentions are. And again, like, I'm not pulling this out of my ass or my keister. I'm getting this from NPR. You know, NPR tweet, uh, actually had an article saying there is a chance that women's menstrual cycles have been uh, messed up because of the vaccine. And that's a good thing. And I'm getting this verbatim from that website. That's what NPR actually said. So, I mean, when you see this, you know, and when you see people actually have prolonged effects from taking the vaccine, and when you see people shut that down, uh, and and not really hear them out that that question that should question that should that should make people questioned uh, or que that should make people question what's currently happening and again I, I don't know if there's any legitimacy to their side effects i don't know i didn't really have any side effects from taking the vaccine i mean obviously i, I got a little bit of a headache and whatnot for like a day or so but that was fine uh but when you hear people actually have prolonged side effects you shouldn't just shoot that down and YouTube should not be censoring videos just because uh, people are discussing, you know, the side effects that they had because they had the COVID vaccine. You know, I mean, that's completely fine. We need to have an open dialogue about this. You know, we should have people that are very honest about what they're currently going through. You know, and just because they're currently going through something because of taking the vaccine, that doesn't mean we have to automatically label them as being anti-vax. That doesn't automatically mean we have to label them as being anti-science or that we have to throttle them in the search results on YouTube. That just means we have to be more understanding of what people's side effects are, you know? And, and, you know, I think the biggest thing that we can all believe in is, you know, science 
is very important. And, you know, you know, science is great. You know, the the importance of testing things out over and over and over again and seeing if it still rings true is very important. You know, but I feel like for a lot of liberals, they have a very dogmatic view of science, where if you question science, you're anti-science. Or if you question the vaccine, you're anti-vaccine. And that's not a healthy way of going about this discussion. You, you know, we, we have to be more aware of what's currently happening in our, in our culture, in our society. You know, we have to be more aware as to what's currently happening with individuals that may have adverse reactions to the vaccine. And just because, you know, they, have, they want to tell their story about taking the vaccine and and what happened to them doesn't make them anti-vaccine. It doesn't make them anti-science. It just means that we need to do more testing and more research when it comes to, you know, getting people to get vaccinated and to encourage people to get vaccinated. You know, that's what matters at the end of the day. So that's just my overall thoughts and opinions on uh, the Howard Stern thing. I was sort of blown away by what I saw from him. Uh, but uh, honestly, I'm not that shocked because... It's Howard Stern, you know, he's he's now a shock jock, but representing the uh, DNC, which is a very sad fall from grace. You know, I mean, when you think of Howard Stern, you think of of him being a rebel, a true rebel on the radio. You you think of him with Artie, you know, you think of him, you know, asking celebs uncomfortable questions. And that still somewhat rings true today, but uh, he, he knew how to pick the guests. You know, now it's different. Now it's indistinguishable from what you would see from Ellen, you know, in terms of the guests that he has. So uh, it's it's interesting, man. It really is to see what's currently happening uh, with Howard Stern and, and to see how much he's sort of been a cheerleader for that other side. That's just my, uh, sorry for the pregnant pause there, but uh, that's just my overall uh, opinion on the Howard Stern thing. Uh, very sad, but uh, well, it is what it is, you know, so... Yep, that's my opinion on that. Uh, all right, let's get into our last topic. A little bit of fun topic here. M&M's becomes more inclusive uh, by uh, changing things up a bit. So this is from The Hill. Mars Incorporated, the company behind the colorful candy-coated chocolates, announced Thursday a global commitment to creating a world where everyone feels like they belong and society is inclusive. As part of the new mission to increase the sense of belonging for 10 million people around the world by 2025, Mars said the M&M's characters who serve as mascots of sorts for the brand will be receiving fresh new looks. The green M&M previously seen in ads po- uh, posing seductively and strutting her stuff in white go-go boots will now sport a pair of sneakers. A description for the green candy on, on the M&M's website uh, says she enjoys being a hype woman for my friends. I think we all win when we see, when we see more women in leading roles, so I'm happy to take on the part of support a friend at, when they succeed. The green M&M set on the promotional site. Another another character, the brown M&M, described her model as not bossy, just the boss. All right, so, I mean, I was more of a Reese's Pieces guy to begin with. I was more of a Reese's Pieces guy to begin with. Um, I mean, it was just, this was so weird to see. I mean, talk about one thing that we truly did not want or need or asked for which is M&M's to be more inclusive. I'm, I'm sick and tired of companies trying, be, trying to be more inclusive to act like they're woke and to act like they're progressive. And Mars Incorporated is currently down that downward, downward trajectory as well. Because uh, I just see the fabrication behind it. I do. I mean, when I see Raytheon, you know, tweet out a bunch of progressive rhetoric, you know, when I see private defense contractors who are actively aiding in the genocide of third world countries, you know, be within this woke progressive movement. They're only doing this to sort of shift away from the actual attention on what they're currently doing, which is blowing up schools and hospitals across the world, right? Like this is the thing that I realized about, you know, wokeism is that it's a tool by the elites. You know, Raytheon has no problem having diversity meetings. Raytheon has no problem talking about the 1619 project. You know, as long as people aren't discussing the fact that, you know, poor innocent brown kids in, in, in Syria and Yemen are getting blown to bits, they're happy. You know, they're happy with the fact that people aren't discussing that. So, I mean, honestly, like, 
M&Ms, they're just in that same vicinity as Raytheon. While they're, they're not, while they're not killing, you know, children with, with bombs or missiles, they're certainly killing them with sugar and diabetes. Uh, so, I mean, that's one of the things. And again, like M&Ms, I don't get, like, I, I never understood M&Ms. They're just chocolate on the inside. I never, like, M&Ms, you know, you know, Milky Way, uh, you know, Three Musketeers, maybe not Milky Way, but Three Musketeers, M&Ms, I never understood that, you know, I never understood that type of chocolate, you know, I was more of a Reese's guy to begin with, I was more of a uh, dark Milky Way guy to begin with, loved a good dark Milky Way, M&Ms, like, I don't know, man, like, they all look different, but they all taste the same. It makes no sense whatsoever why people have this much of a fervor for M&Ms. I mean, Reese's, I get. Reese's are the best candies ever. I mean, that's the best candy. Uh, Sour Patch, great candy as well. Uh, I have a soft spot for a Swedish fish. I do. Uh, this, I don't. I don't get it whatsoever. Uh, I, don't, I do not get why people like M&Ms at all. They, they make no sense at all. Uh, why people have this much of a love for M&M's. Uh, there's way better uh, chocolate out there than M&M's. Honestly, like even dark chocolate, like dark chocolate that's not necessarily candy. I would much rather have a good dark chocolate than that of say an M&M. I would much rather have like endangered species, uh, caramel dark chocolate, 60, 62% cocoa or cacao. I would much rather have that than say M&M's easily. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking about chocolate, but I love chocolate. But M&M's becomes more inclusive by that. Um, I don't know who they were trying to get. I don't know who their target demo is. Nobody really asked for it. I mean, even progressives are like crapping on the idea. You know, like, like that. it's just, when I see corporations go go woke, it's like, you do not want to be woke. You, you really do not want to be woke whatsoever. It makes no sense. Because again, you want to save taxes as well. You know, you have no problem being woke if it means people don't realize you have a tax haven in some island that nobody has access to. You know, a lot of these billionaires and CEOs, they have no problem with playing the facade of being woke as long as it means that they don't, as long as people don't realize that they're hiding taxes and hiding, uh, paying taxes uh, to their own governments. You know, which again, I mean, obviously it's taxes, like who wants to pay taxes, but you know, the fact that they're doing this to cover up that shows the dark, twisted energy that's behind it. You know, Emma Watson has no problem trying to promote gender equality at the United Nations, as long as it, as long as it means that people don't realize that she's hiding her taxes in Panama. You know, you know, I'm sure it rings well with a bunch of other CEOs and billionaires uh, that are currently, you know, trying to reduce their carbon footprint, even though they go on private jets to St. Barth's. You know, I mean, that's, I sort of view this in the same way as that, you know, where it's just corporations and billionaires that are trying to act woke, but for reasons because they're trying to hide uh, dark, dark, dark uh, things that they're currently doing, you know, so that, that's just my overall uh, thought on all of that. Um, and um, yeah, that's, that's where I want to sort of end off with that. Uh, I actually do have weekly picks. So each and every week, I, re I recommend a book, a piece of art. Uh, an album, a special, maybe sometimes a special that I really enjoy that I think you guys will enjoy. Uh, this week I'll be recommending Earl Sweatshirt Sick. I like this album. I actually may go as far as to say that I really do love this album. I do. I, I it, obviously it's not for everybody's cup of tea. You know, Earl Sweatshirt, if you guys don't know, experimental rapper, he was a part of the collective Odd Future, uh, released Doris in 2013. Uh, I don't like shit i don't go outside and in, in 2015 it's past the 10 minute 10 minute mark so i can swear uh so yes our old sweatshirt released this album and it comes in with a whopping 24 minutes and in those 24 minutes earl really puts the pedal to the metal with these flows with these bars uh he is one of my favorite rappers and you can tell you can easily tell the mf doom influence that that is on his sleeve because man oh man like you can really hear how much he rides on the beat and how much his flows are similar to that of MF Doom. And, you know, when you hear this, when you hear songs like 2010, I mean, 2010 is my, is easily my favorite song, you know, to hear that sort of like 
it sounded very similar to his other song called Nowhere to Go. Like I see a very, there's a very, there's, they were very similar in terms of their instrumentals. Uh, but I mean, 2010 was easily my favorite song off the album. Uh, you know, Sick is also another great song. Old Friend, Titanic, Visions, also a great song that I really love. There's so many great songs on this album. And I obviously, you know, it's not everybody, everybody's cup of tea. You know, don't get me wrong. You know, it's experimental. You know, this is not something that he play in front of a woman that he trying to try and impress. You know, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't, you know, tor- torture her with this album. I would torture her with Death Grips instead. But this is a great album. You know, I, I really enjoyed this album. And it shows the maturation within Earl Sweatshirt because I listened to like Feet of Clay, which was released two, three years ago. I didn't like that album. I'm going to be quite honest with you. I didn't really like that album. This album is different. And you see that Earl's more comfortable with these beats. You know, he's more comfortable uh, with who he is at this moment in time. And I think that's a great thing. And I really think that you guys will enjoy this album. Earl Sweatshirt Sick, it's 24 minutes. It's like about as half as long as this podcast episode. Uh, so I think you guys will enjoy it. I really do. Earl Sweatshirt Sick is my weekly pick. Go check it out. It's on streaming services everywhere. Uh, I'll leave a link in the description box below. It's also on Earl Sweatshirt's YouTube channel as well. So just go on his playlist uh, part of his, of his YouTube channel and uh, listen to it. It's right there. Uh, All right, guys. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you like, subscribe, and click the bell icon for notifications down below. Um, Notifications down below. Make sure you click the bell. uh, Make sure you uh, subscribe to both my podcast channel and my podcast clips channel. Also, make sure to leave a comment down below as to what are your overall thoughts and opinions on any of the topics that I discussed below. Whether it's M&M's being inclusive, Howard Stern saying hospitals should should turn away unvaxxed people, whether it's Taylor Fritz and why he's here to stay, or often at all surpassing Novak Djokovic in Majors 1, if that could happen, and Medvedev being Cressy. So if you have any questions, comments, concerns about any of those topics, feel free to comment down below. I'll definitely be responding to them. And uh, if you uh, want to be able to rate and review on iTunes and Spotify, make sure you do that as well. Um, you know, obviously... Um, you know, Spotify now allows you to uh, review on their podcast, uh, review podcast. So uh, feel free to review po- the podcast as well. So guys, and review my podcast. Uh, hopefully it's a good review that you guys leave me. If not, whatever. Uh, but guys, thank you so much for watching. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you guys on Thursday. Actually, I'll see you guys on today, actually, uh, on my podcast clips channel, uh, you know, releasing the quarterfinals. So quarterfinal recap. So Go check it out, uh, and I'll see you guys then. So, guys, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day, and uh, make sure you watch tennis, uh, the Australian Open, quarterfinals, semifinals, and the finals in the up-and-coming few days. All right, guys, peace. See you all.